Welcome to Sky Team's People First with Morag Barrett. My guest this week is a friend and colleague from the old country, coming to us from England, Chris Lever, who is the CEO of Telios Consulting. And Chris's passion and mission is to help leaders navigate unfamiliar and uncharted waters, regardless of sector that we're all facing. He writes, he consults, he trains and creates. He provides tools, all of which are grounded in more than 40 years of experience. And that experience includes positions as a commercial ferry captain, senior manager of Digital Equipment Corporation, and a 25 years at the sharp end of change management programs around the world. So I'm looking forward to learning from Chris and sharing with you how we can help ensure that our personal and professional change projects are successful. So Chris, welcome to People First. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome to my little hut in the uh, in the woods at the bottom of my garden. This is uh, my, my log cabin. Your log cabin. It sounds so exotic. And it's funny, I've been seeing a lot of people who've been investing in office space, especially in 2020, so that they can get out of the house and put these sort of uh, places in the in the garden. But my sense is that that is a well-lived and well-loved office space. It, it, it is, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, welcome, as I said, to people first. And as with every episode, I'm actually going to start with your origin story. So, Chris, when you were a wee lad back at primary school and the teacher asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was your answer? Yeah, I wanted to be a biologist, actually. Um, I, I, was, I was totally... As a child, I was absolutely feral. So my father was in the uh, Royal Marines. And at that time, he was doing um, kind of interesting stuff around the world, which took him away for about 18 months. So what that meant for me is I, um, I was almost like uh, parentless uh, for long periods of time. So I actually grew up in, in, the, in the wilds, uh, as much as the UK can have wilds, but certainly on the sea. And I just loved all things to do with biology and the sea. So yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a failed biologist. <laughs> failed biologist, but a successful ferry captain. So what was the pivot point other than being feral and loving everything on and around the sea? I, th I think for me, the um, it, it, it was one of those kind of fortuitous uh, moments, really. It was, uh, I, I was reaching the age of 17, didn't know what I wanted to do um, uh, for the rest of my life, um, as you as you don't at that kind of age. So I, I literally went uh, to one of the local docks and uh, found out where all the uh, dockers and skippers and the crew used to hang out. Um, was pointed towards uh, a particular guy who was a, a captain of one of the boats and went up to him and said, you know, I'd like a job, mate. <laughs> and, amazing, and amazingly, he gave me one. And that was really a adventure. Yeah, so that's a big adventure. So how did your experience as a ferry ca captain then it, and your your uh, at-sea career inform the work that you're doing around change management and the two books that you've written? Okay. So it was it was actually even before I was a skipper, um, which I think was the really important stuff, because I actually started as the lowest of the low. So I was the greenhorn deckhand, which basically I meant, uh, which meant I, I got all the rubbish jobs. Well, it was all the dirty jobs, which I've got to say, I absolutely loved. And uh, it, and literally, I learned, learned the ropes. Um, 
and that was my role. But it was a, it was a significant time, and, and this features in, in a lot of the books and certainly features in a lot of my thinking in terms of leadership and, and the whole area of, of change and how to bring in uh, form and transformation. Because on the very, very first day of the, the, the new job, and, and the reminder was that I was simply the lowest of the low. I mean, literally in terms of pecking order, I was, I was right at the bottom. The, the captain, a guy called Bob Hale, said, um, said to me at the end of the day, come stand with me by the side of the wheel. And he asked me, what do you see, Chris? And I mean, to be actually standing on the bridge, uh, mm -hmm. this guy, you know, I was just all over the place. I mean, I saw very, very little, like, you know, talked about some folks that were coming in. And then he started to explain to me what he was seeing, the, mm -hmm. the clouds and what they were saying in terms of the weather conditions coming up, the the uh, the various boats uh, that were going to cross us, which ones were the uh, ones to watch out for, um, the sea conditions. And he did that question, or he asked me that question every single day. What are you seeing? And it was a question which was always probing. It was always assessing. And what he was after and was how much of what, of this incredible scene was I taking in? How much of the dashboard and instrumentation was I actually reading? And how mm -hmm. put all of that together as a systemic whole to make sense of what was happening to this ship, to this, um, this passage that we were on? And that question for me, uh, what do you see, has been absolutely key. So when I actually became a captain, um, the very first day after I got my master's ticket, he said to me, just as I've trained you around seeing, because it's about seeing, foreseeing, extrapolating over different timelines, he said, I want you to do exactly the same with uh, the people that are going to be your crew now. In, in the same way as I've trained you, I want you to mentor those. It's funny how you talk there because it reminds me a, of sailing as I grew up, but it's that language and framework and how that can help bring us together and also cause confusion. Because I mean, you used the phrase learning the ropes and it's still a common phrase in, in life today. And the origin is in the Navy and being at sea. And it reminds me of a, a past guest of mine, Dr. Oleg Konovalov, who was a deep sea trawler fisherman up in the around Alaska and again some of the learnings and how that informed his leadership journey yep. and your your two books both build on the language and framework that came from your merchant seaman career so yep. navigating change a leader's guide and then the second book ensuring change delivers success an end-to-end -end view of the process yep. so why is it then that with all of this research experience and so forth, that the research shows that 20% of change efforts are the ones that are successful and 80% don't deliver that end view that we hope for. Why the disconnect? Uh, the, the answer is a complex one and will take a lot of time to unpack. But I guess at the heart of it is, if you sound navigational themes, um, most leaders have not, not actually ever been uh, trained and assessed and licensed in the same way as I was at, at, uh, at sea uh, to actually navigate. So we use the words, uh, but we don't understand uh, the, the meaning behind them. So for example, um, in there are estimated to be three, four hundred thousand books on leadership. They've been published at a rate of eight per day, apparently. Um, in the majority of the books, they, they define vision in a particular way. And vision always refers to uh, the, the there and then of some kind of picture 
up ahead, which then gets translated into strategy, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's really, really important. We see in, for a navigator, vision is, is something which is much more inclusive, much more systemic. So as part of my early training um, at sea, I learned to read and gather in many, many different strands of information. Uh, I learned that, um, one, my own ability to see was actually limited. I'm only one person. I, I began to understand that other people, other departments, actually had views which may sometimes be contradictory or, or actually may be uh, totally opposite to what I was seeing, but it had value. So I was trained to actually gather, to build an information block. So for me, seeing is about understanding partly the historic trends and patterns, but also understanding with great depth all of the interrelating factors that are going on around around me, both within, within the ship or organization, and also outside of that as well. And collecting all of that information and then being able to extrapolate uh, using foresight in terms of uh, plausible scenarios about what might happen. Mm -hmm. As you you do that instinctively. But in our training of leaders, because I'm, I'm not beating up leaders, um, I'm actually saying there's a gap in, in how we actually um, uh, uh, develop our leadership. Most of that wouldn't uh, wouldn't get um, uh, uh, done. They, they would go on a, a course where there would be something on how to frame vision. So, so a lot of the time, this this stuff is is incomplete. Um, and we know, for example, in in organisations, certainly in, in the UK, um, organisations up to around about 1,500 people. There are 500 strategic units of information which are hidden uh, because people want them hidden or they're hidden because people don't realize they're actually important or they're not joined up. So therefore, they're actually not on the table when, when leaders are actually making strategic decisions about change, um, et cetera, et cetera. So the quality of the decisions are actually uh, is, is massively impaired because of, because of that. Um, so that's just kind of one reason. The other reasons are the culture. Uh, we understand from the changeability research, culture is the biggest determinant of uh, success or failure. And uh, we can we can describe change-able culture. We can describe change-inept culture. Um, we can actually measure um, where, where organizations are on, on that. But actually, um, it's interesting, a lot of organizations go into culture change programs. And you ask them, have you changed the culture? Well, that's a separate question. Mm -hmm. The culture remains the same because the patterns are, are there and, and they exist uh, and, and are pretty embedded. What I like about the work and our past conversations is the way that you bring together what have, as you've just described, been treated as separate levers. But the reality is we need to be thoughtful and deliberate about all of them that are available to us, the 500 that you mentioned, and deciding which ones are we going to pull and by whom and when. And certainly in your book, you talk about the navigational principle number one, which is all about understanding where we are and where we want to go and collecting all of those different perspectives. But navigational principle number two, that long answer around, well, how do we clarify the vision and overcome those common issues before we set sail and then move forward to making it a reality? Absolutely. It, interesting. I mean, you talked earlier when we were getting ready for this conversation about the human side of change, which touches on culture, which you've just mentioned. So the human side is engaging the crew and yeah. the human side is engaging the, the, the port hands who are going to help unload the boat when we get there. 
So, Chris, you talked earlier about the human side of change, which to me is the crew that we have to get aligned. So how do you connect the two, the logical side of change with the human side of change? Okay, so, I mean, obviously, we, we use a, a model, you know, process people and, and task, you know, that's uh, pretty pretty basic. But I think what's underpinning that for us is just the complexity of, of all the change that we're, we're, we're going through. And what we've noticed in, over here in the UK, which uh, where we're getting hit by both COVID, by uh, DX, by um, uh, climate change, and also Brexit as, as, as well. Um, because it's so complex, organizations are making the mistake often of thinking that we need, in their words, strong leadership. And that's a kind of an interesting one because who would want weak leadership? But it's in how you actually define strong leadership is, is part of the problem. Mm -hmm. So for many organizations, it is put, uh, people and cultures which are prepared to basically not care about people, to, to drive through change regardless. Um, they'll use phrases like, you don't make an omelette if you don't break a few eggs. Mm -hmm. I had to actually do things um, which are, are actually, I think, dehuman, dehumanizing. And we, we've had to intervene in, in a lot of those situations where just simply leaders in their rush to produce short-term change um, have forgotten all about the fact that actually it's people that really can. The, the WEF have, have said, you know, in digital transformation, um, you know, um, digital was made by people for the benefit of people. And I think sometimes we forget that. So mm -hmm. in the work that we do, it's 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 about how do we we work together. And that's not just a kind of an ideology of, of, of being, you know, um, you know, nice and pink and fluffy, as, as, uh, as some would describe it. But it's actually understanding that in change, you absolutely need to have communication, which is which is flowing. Um, so yeah. you've got department structures and you've got strategic level agreements on boundaries. That's all interruptions. If you've got relationships, which are actually uh, uh, mature, they're robust. What you get is is information flying across um, those uh, those boundaries. So the right people end up with the right information, being able to do the right thing at the right time. So there's a, a structural piece uh, to this as as well. But I think also, and I just indicated, I think there's a challenge which I would have um, on two counts in terms of uh, change. One is uh, we use the, the language of uh, the leadership of change rather than the management of change. Um, simply, we've had 30 years of a lot of excellent change management processes, uh, and but the success rate of change has actually not changed in mm -hmm. that it's still remaining at 20%. And we think it's often because the leadership is actually absent um, often. Uh, so, they'll, um, so they'll empower their change teams um, and they'll become sponsors rather than actively in, involved. So often leaders, leaders don't know what's actually happening through the organization and don't know what's happening to, to the people. So in part, we're trying to um, bring leadership at the very heart because leaders work with people. That's, that's the essence of it. So in part, that, that's a, a, a structural thing. But also in, in all that we do in terms of the tools and processes, um, we're emphasizing that you, you can dehumanize it and talk about data flows, but really it's information flows and it's about people having information, having, having passions, it's not just about data, um, having insights. 
which which are absolutely critical for this whole thing to be joined up. And, and really, that's in, in the tools that we uh, employ and that have developed, that lies at the heart of, of everything that we do. So um, my friend and colleague, Michael Kanick, is the author of Ruthless Consistency. And in our interview, he talked about the fact that when all is said and done, a lot more is said than done. And you talked and alluded it to it there that the role of leadership is that communication up, down and across through an organization. So for people listening to this conversation who are likely in the midst of many change efforts, whether it's personal, I'm going to lose a little weight and eat more healthily, or whether it's organizational in terms of addressing the challenges that COVID and a distributed work environment are bringing, how, what are the first baby steps that leaders need to take consistently in order to elevate their communication in a change environment? For me, that goes back to the, the three principles of navigation. Mm -hmm. um, and the three principles are very simple. It, it's simply being able to firstly win the argument, which is this is where we are. This is the information that we've got, and this is therefore why we need to change. Now, that sounds really, really simple, um, but oftentimes that's communicated in a very, very narrow set of, of, um, uh, inf of information. And again, going back to C, if you ask me at C, where, where am I? I could answer that in terms of where I am on the chart, where I am in relation to the, um, to the ocean floor, where I am in terms of the weather clouds coming in, where I am in terms of all the traffic around me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where I am in terms of the rate of fuel usage. All of that information is, is, is there, it's critical, and it's critical that I, I, I join together. Oftentimes, uh, leaders simply use the um, information which could be financial. Um, so this is our financial situation, blah, blah, blah. Or th this is our um, status in terms of this particular sector. And it's, it's, and it's actually answered in, in too narrow a way. So, so part of the answer is actually to understand really where are we and what does this change therefore represent? How are we begin to think about it? What what's the foresight that we, we need to apply? And, and you know, I'm pretty tough. When I hear leaders say, well, hindsight's a wonderful thing, they often use that as an excuse for, for a lack of foresight. So that first principle, um, and to 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 understand where you are requires you to go and talk to a lot of people. You need to sample. Your view as a leadership will be in a bubble. So can you get outside of the bubble um, and go to people who were maybe um, deckhands who understand how the ship works at a very, very different uh, level? Or you go and talk to um, uh, the ICT uh, department who've got a view about how um, technology is uh, deployed but often never asked about their views on, on strategy. So the first one is, is where we are. The second one is, is, is obviously the vision. And two types of vision. One is, is vision which is given. And if it's given, it needs to be sold. So you need to engage people and you need to convince them um, that the compelling glimpse of the desired future that you're presenting to them is one that's actually is good for them to sign up for. Mm -hmm. The other way of vision, uh, of, of, 
of engaging people around vision is actually to democratize it, to actually involve people in the, in the vision formation as well. Um, and we've seen some organizations over here that have done that and have done that brilliantly. So people automatically feel they are part of the future. You haven't got to sell it to them in, 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 the, in the same way. And then the third element, the third principle of navigation is simply how we're going to get there. And one of, one of those um, things which we continually try and win people over to, and it's a really difficult one for, for all kinds of political reasons, is um, ships don't travel in straight lines. So therefore, if you if you figure out where you are with all the complexity mm -hmm. and you figure out what this thing could look like, the naive and the program planners would often draw a straight line of mm -hmm. a linear step. Trouble is you're not in control of everything and you don't know everything. So again, it's, it's about on this journey, there'll be times when you need to change direction. We're absolutely you'll need to be weighing up the multitude of different um, different options, understanding which are the priorities, which way to go at this point, because I might arrive here, and suddenly here represents three now new pathways I can go on. Mm -hmm. And all of that, if you're going to do it well, and, and particularly in a, in a complex situation, requires people's input. Every time you say to people, what do you think? What do you see? What would be your hope? You're engaging in a different way. So therefore, the change becomes part of our story together, our narrative together, rather than the one that just gets implemented because, you know, we want to sell you the reasons why we're doing this. Um, that has got a place, but it's much yeah. more, much better to, to um, democratize it as much as you can. See, I love the description that you've portrayed there, because I think often the mistake that people make is do this, get that. A, yeah. therefore B, and to your point, that reinforces the straight line perception. And life and change is never that clear, and nor is there often a clear destination. All it is is a false summit to the next change that comes. And so to your point, what you've just talked to me there is understand where we are now, engage the hearts and minds of the people who are going to help move you in a different direction and communicate what's in it for me, not just what's in it for the business. Absolutely. And then the how we get there is more the how do we get through the first tack and right. then we'll work out what's happening and then getting closer to that end goal, yeah. but being ready to be agile and to respond in the moment as new information comes to light. Absolutely. It's powerful stuff, Chris, indeed. So how can people learn more about the work you and your team at Telios Consulting do, and where can they get hold of your books? Okay. Um, so the books are published on our website, which is Telios Consulting, um, and we've got a whole load of publications on there. Um, we've also got a whole load of stuff which is free, so uh, please uh, please download that. We've actually researched the research in terms of the figures, because I know this is sometimes a controversial error, and, and you can get papers uh, uh, free. In terms of the, the two books, the... Um, Navigating Change and Leader's Guide is basically there to say these are the three principles of navigation and these are how you apply them to business and organizational life. Um, they're actually a lot more complex. So I, I say to people, uh, the, the books themselves have actually been designed uh, by the, the former uh, editor of the Nintendo magazine. So it's actually very thin. Yeah. The thin is they slip behind people's um, uh, laptops in briefcases. So they're actually 
to be used. They're a practical book. They're not meant to sit on shelves. So, they, so both books have been adopted by one of our top business schools over here. And at first they said, look, the only criticism we've got of them, Chris, is that they're, 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 they're actually quite thin and they don't sit on the library shelves. And so never intended to. They're mm -hmm. there. So the very first person who bought uh, this book um, was uh, CEO of uh, an alternative energy uh, company based in uh, Dubai. And he said, I read it on the flight between Dubai and Hong Kong, and it's changed my thinking. Um, so the, the, we've spent a lot of time in the design of this. Um, so it's easy to navigate. It's colorful. Mm -hmm. um, it's easy to find your way through. You can read it in two and a half hours. But it'll take probably five years to begin to really understand and to implement all of the stuff we're talking about there. And, well, and that's, that's why people need to call you. It was interesting. I was talking to Price Pritchett, who is the leader in terms of these handbook style books. And he had the same message for me, which is books shouldn't be designed to sit on a shelf. No, absolutely. They should be designed to be read, and he used the same example, read it in a flight, read it during a train journey, but be able to apply some of those concepts immediately to make a difference, to solve the problem or move your organization forward. So absolutely. kudos to you and your team in that is what you've created and that's what people will find. And I'll make sure that all of that information is in the show notes around this video. So Chris, I appreciate your time today. Do you have any final words just to close out this conversation for our listeners? Okay, for, for me, the, the hope is um, that it doesn't like doesn't need to be like it is at the moment. Um, where we've seen the principles and we've seen the tools supplied, it's made huge difference. The last piece of work we did was a, a shift in the um, aviation industry across Africa. Um, we just showed them the, the work, we showed them the models, we showed them the, th the, the thinking and the principles behind, and they can make a difference immediately. And that was in a really, really tough situation. So for me, the hope in all of this is uh, we've got to take seriously. Actually, we're not, in terms of change management, we're not doing such a great job. The hope is it doesn't need to be like that. And the, the solutions are often very practical. They're often very, very much rooted in common sense. And there is a different way. And, and really, that's what we're, that's our key message. A powerful way to end. Again, Chris, thank you. And I wish you and your team ongoing success. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining MORAG today. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. If you learned something worth sharing, share it. Cultivate your relationships today when you don't need anything before you need something. Be sure to follow Sky Team and MORAG on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any ideas about topics we should tackle, interviews we should do, or if you yourself would like to be on the show, drop us a line at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again for joining us today. And remember, business is personal and relationships matter. We are your allies.